today's scripture reading comes from Exodus 17, 8 um, to 18, verse 9. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Raphidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, so that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of the, called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Jethro the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, uh, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of, sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him, and they asked each other of their, of their welfare and went into the camp. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day, a day that you have made. And as we now ask for your word to be preached, proclaimed, your good news to be said, we also ask that our hearts will be open, our spirits ready to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. I have uh, just three points as we move on. And a lot of times when the passage is a little longer, I'll just get right into it because there's a lot of meat to this. And um, there is a lot of meat to this. Uh, the three points that I'll probably weave in and out of is the flag, the wise, and the mission. The flag, the wise, and the mission. So if you have not been with us or if you've missed a few, we are now at a point where we see the Israelites taken up out of bondage in Egypt. And as they're going up into this wilderness and desert, going to the mountain that God told them to go to, that they come to this point that we are in. And there are the Amalekites that see them at Rephidim, and they come to fight with the Israelites. And then we see in the second portion... Uh, Moses' father-in-law, the priest of Midian, Jethro, or if you if you were keeping up in chapter two, they call him Ruel, right? So 
he comes and he greets them. And then you might be thinking, what's this have to do with anything? Because in between these two big points are, first, there was manna. That's a story everybody knows. And then a chapter after what we're going to study today is the Ten Commandments. Everybody knows that. So when we have this hinging passage between the two, we, we might wonder, what's the Amalekites have to do with Jethro? Are these stories related at all? And I want to tell you that, yes, they're absolutely related. In fact, I believe you can parallel these two stories, to sh and God is showing us these two for a reason. Mind you, in the beginning, when we studied Exodus, we did say nothing is random. Uh, the fire, the burning bush, that wasn't random. The miracles and each single one, they weren't random. There was a point to everything. And if we miss that point, so if we think of something else or we just think, oh, you know, this is just whatever it is, and we don't really go into why God did these things, then we may miss what God is trying to teach not only His people or taught His people, but what God is teaching us. What is God teaching us? And so these are things that we must be aware of as we go into or we continue on in Exodus. Uh, so then Amalek came, which Amalek, if you don't know, we did Genesis. Amalek was the grandson of Esau. So these were the Edomites or the Amalekites, and they would come down and they would fight with Israel. And so they were closest. So Moses goes to Joshua in verse 9, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand. So why tomorrow? A lot of times whenever something would happen, Moses would always say, tomorrow I will do this, tomorrow I will do this. So that's interesting. But he says, I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so he is saying, I'm going to take this staff, the staff that you saw, amazing things happen before, split the Red Sea, made the Nile turn into blood. Whenever we lifted it up, we saw hail would fall down. They saw all these things, and uh, he's going to go out with staff in hand. So Joshua in verse 10, and this is the first time Joshua is introduced, uh, but they explain later, like in the book of Numbers, that Joshua was Moses' assistant, so his pastoral assistant. And so Joshua would do, as Moses would tell him, fights with the Amalekites. And Moses, Aaron, Hur goes on top of this hill. And then we see this picture. Whenever Moses will hold up his hand, so a lot of people think it's like this. Like this. Or I, I think if you heard this story as a child, maybe it's like, oh, he's doing this and he's praying. But it's singular here. So whenever Moses held up his hand, which meant we were to refer back to verse 9, the staff of God is in my hand. So whenever he would lift up the staff of God, Israel prevailed. And whenever his hand would become lowered, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand, so imagine just holding the staff and then people are fighting and you're winning and then you're just going to get tired. You're just going to get tired. A lot of people here, we may uh, relate to it even in worship. You might want to raise your hand, but man, that chorus is long. So you switch the other hand. God, you're so good. And that course is long. And then you do the hold the TV one, right? Like, uh, it's like, man, this is wrong. And so same thing with Moses. He saw that this is something that God would intend 
for him to show the Israelites that his power will prevail. So lift up, and they would get tired. And so when he he got tired, so they put a stone under him, and he sat on it. And this is just crazy, but we're going to get to it. All these little things are important. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one one at a side, so just so that his hands wouldn't get tired, because every time he would lower it, the Amalekites would start winning, and the Israelites would start losing. He's like, we got to keep these hands up. And so some people think, is this about prayer? Is it about intercessory prayer? And I think that's okay that if you did that in your small group or whatever it is, that yes, we need to pray, lift up our hands and pray. But it's, it's a little bit of a jump for me. So if you've heard that before, I don't want to knock on anybody who preached it, but I do want to say it's a little bit of a jump for me because in the Bible it never says that he prayed. It just said he lifted up his hand and then his other hand, and then the hands, and they both got tired. And so, what is this about? What is this about? And if we weren't sure, after Joshua completely overwhelms Amalek, or the Malachites, then the Lord says to Moses in verse 14, write this as a memorial in a book, recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And then Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And this is something very quite significant. Afterwards, they built this altar and saying, The Lord is my banner or the Lord is my flag. And these days in our society, the flags can have a lot of meanings, can bring up a lot of emotions depending on what kind of flag it is, how you respond to a certain flag. If you're in the United States of America, you are not unfamiliar with all this political connotations and these emotions that are surrounding this idea of a flag. But that's because the flag is supposed to bring up emotion. It's supposed to bring up something in you. And um, there was an old movie once with uh, an actor named Matthew Broderick, and he was uh, starring in this movie called Glory. And that's where Denzel Washington was, Morgan Freeman was, and there's all these famous people in it. And this was about the 54th, or the, the battalion that would, in the Civil War, would go up, and they would eventually lose this fort. But... Uh, his name was, he played Colonel Shaw, Matthew Broderick would play Colonel Shaw, and then he would try to rally his troops up this hill to get and take over this fort, and then they were just completely overwhelmed. They didn't know what to do, and you see people are dying left and right. They're just hovering and hiding, and finally, Colonel Shaw gets the courage, and then he takes out his sword, and uh, he uh, loads his gun, and he charges but as soon as he charges, he gets shot down. That's how bad it was. And then when his people, when his, uh, when his battalion saw this, they, they were shocked. This is our captain. This is our leader who just basically committed suicide. What did they do immediately then? Denzel Washington's character, he's a very young and handsome man back then. But he, his character would go and he would just grab the flag. And when he grabbed the flag, he would get shot. But he would, even though he got shot, he would hold this flag. And that's when the whole battalion would go up and charge. That flag held meaning, and that's what this movie tried to portray. 
but a flag meant something more than even the army itself. It meant more than just the 54th, or it meant more than just CGS, or it meant more than just Israelites. If you see it, the flag had an idea to it. It had morality to it. It had this pervasive uh, vision to it that the people would see and they say they would think this is more than just about me and they would get encouraged their morale would increase and they would do these things but here God is showing that he is the flag what does that mean the Lord is the flag and so if you've been listening then you can kind of tell this has a lot to do with more than just us and the fight and the battle. Does that make sense? This is more than just a battle that you're facing right now. A lot of times when we face a battle, it's just about me. It's like, oh man, this is so hard. This is so rough. This is really difficult. How am I going to get through it? I need to pray to God and I'll, maybe I'll get through it. But when the flag comes out, then you realize this is even bigger than the battle that you're facing. This is even bigger than what you would think and what you can see and that maybe even what you can realize. Mind you, when he says uh, to whisper this as a memorial, write it in the book, right? Recite it in the ears. And then he goes, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Uh, the Amalekites were not destroyed here. They weren't destroyed in Judges. They weren't. They were all the way to David's time before they were destroyed. There are other races here that they would fight, nations that they would fight against, that they, could, they would completely destroy, but the Malachi is not so. But why is this there? So I've posed a lot more questions than I've answered it, but I think it's because you need to continue to read. The, this story hinges on this next story. They're all connected, and we can't just take this story for itself, but... Uh, in verse 16, explains kind of what the banner is. A hand upon the throne of the Lord, or it could be otherwise translated as those who are against the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And then something happens. There's a switch. Jethro, who happens to be Moses' father-in-law, comes. And then when Moses' father-in-law comes, he listens to what Moses has to say, and he does something completely different from the Amalekites. He rejoices with Moses. So we see here there is a contrast, not just a juxtaposition, there's a contrast, a direct contrast between two people who would come and see and greet the Israelites. One would come and they would make war. Another one would come and they would rejoice. They would worship God with Moses. Who, were, who was Jethro? Who are the Midianites? Midianites and the Amalekites were the closest neighbors as they were going up the wilderness. And so they would naturally be the people that Moses would have to go through to continue on to the promised land. So this is, this is showing us something. When we receive Christ and when we continue to move in the Spirit, which is what we really believe God is doing for our church, we're going to, when you move, you naturally move into places you weren't before, but that also means someone else was there. Someone else was occupying, or something else was there, and something else was occupying. And those 
forces will either greet you and rejoice or greet you and make war. But they will always have some kind of greeting, meaning you will come together, you will collide one way or another as you move in the Lord. So, uh, <coughs> excuse me, when you first receive Jesus Christ and when you first receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, a lot of times think it's going to be a picnic. It's going to be hunky-dory. Everything's going to be fine. I have the Spirit of God. It's great. And I will say yes in one sense. It's great because now God has a hold on your life. But on also the other sense is God is going to lead you in this path, the wilderness, and things will get tough. You will come to places where you'll be like, wow, how am I going to, how am I going to get over this? I have no idea what's going to happen. And that's just, um, that's the way God leads his people. Um, so we see here that there are a lot of links between the Amalekites and the Midianites. And I just want to give a few before I continue on. In chapter 17, verse 8, the Amalekites came and attacked. Verse 18, 5 to 7, Jethro came and greeted. Right, So there's two things. When they both collide, one would attack, one would greet. Both in 17.9 and 18.25, men are chosen for a specific task, which, which we'll get into. And both in 17.12 and 18.13, Moses sits to judge, which we're going to get to as well. But both episodes, Moses commences his judging the next day. And then it lasts all day till the evening. So there are all these parallels between these two stories or scenarios or episodes. And in both in 1712 and 1818, Moses is said to be tired, so he requires assistance. And we'll get to that. And so when we go to a place where God is leading us, a lot of times we might think, okay, it's about us and God, it's about us and God. And we follow him, and I believe that because we're being faithful, the Spirit is leading us, and he's challenging a lot of us. Uh, if you've been coming on Sunday, if you've been doing any kind of training, if you're in members class with me, there are some big things that we are going through as a church. If you haven't been, I encourage you because then you're kind of out of the loop. But if you have been, then you see that there's a lot of change coming. And when a lot of changes are coming, you actually don't know what to do. What Moses did was... He basically did everything. So he tried to lift his hand and the staff by himself, and he tried to do the judging by himself. And then what happens is his father-in-law, who's a Midianite, he is not an Israelite, meaning he did not worship God as the only God and the sovereign God. He didn't, he didn't worship God that way. In fact, he changes, and this is what he says. He's like, now I know, and I will worship. Before he didn't. And so when Jethro sees that, he goes to Moses, you need help. When you think about it, when we're moving on in this journey, uh, there's one thing that we cannot miss. I get it that the Holy Spirit is moving. He's challenging us. There's exciting times that we're going through, the exciting times that are coming. But we will also be offered wisdom. From unlikely places, perhaps people that are older than us, perhaps people that aren't even in this congregation. And Moses could have easily said, bro, I get it, you're my father-in-law, 
you, are, you have a few years on me. I don't even know if he had a few years on him. But I'm like 80. I, I know what I'm doing. And I get it, I'm tired, but I can do it. But he did not. He listened. There is something to understand about when we continue to follow the Lord, the Lord will teach us in unlikely places and things that we don't expect. And to be aware is to actually be ready, and to be ready is to be humble. If Moses was not humble, he would not have received this instruction. And he said, you know what? I'm an adult. I got this. I'm 18. I could do what I want. I know exactly what to do. I've lived long enough. He did not do that. In fact, he listens and then he obeys his father-in-law. And then they start appointing elders. And when they start appointing elders, even the elders, there was a, an order. There was a way they did it. Some thousands, some hundreds, some tens, they would be appointed and this goes to show that there's a lot of general things we may learn, but there's going to be a lot of specific things that will play out in God's people, in that organization. So we have groups in our church, like the college group, or we have another affinity group like um, the young adults or the married, or we have singles, whatever it is. And then we have other groups like small groups, and then we have leaders in those groups. And we have deacons. Who are, who are serving ministries. We have elders in charge of the church and uh, ruling the church. And so we have all these things happening, and this organization has to take place. But to do that well, you need wisdom. And we see here that with a humble heart that we can receive this wisdom. So the question is, CGS, are you humble? Are you listening? Is your mind open? Is your heart ready? And if not, then where is your mind? Is it droning off somewhere? I'm not talking about right now, but is it droning off somewhere else, you know, in life, in life? Are you just doing the same old thing and just saying? So this is a funny thing. Um, I love our college members. Um, a lot of our college members were people that I also taught when they were in Awana, which is interesting. Shows you how young I am, right? Uh, but and now they're, you know, leading us in song, serving us by doing the announcements. And then every once in a while we get this, and I love it. It's awesome. And then there are two different groups, one last month, one this month. And they're so talented, but... We get, uh, we get to have a chance to have them step up and serve these very precious and important elements of our service to God. And so when we're doing this, we're also teaching and learning at the same time. Are we ready? Are we listening? Or are you just going through life like just saying, I am going to be the best drummer in the world. But you don't practice. You, you, don't, you don't even listen to other people play the drums. I'm going to be rich, but you don't read any books or study people or put your mind to actual work. You don't know what it means to do sales. I'm going to do this or that, but you don't do anything about it. All you do is you say you have these dreams, but there are never any steps. You know what that means? That means you're not listening. That means you're not humble. You're not taking in whatever God may use. And God may use your father-in-law to humble you, to be like this person's older who may not have your traditions, but you still have something to learn from them. 
And I believe that that should be us. If you really want to be great and you want to use what God has given you for his kingdom, then be humble. Listen. Be ready. Because it could come from places that you might not even expect. And this is what God is teaching us. What happens as Jethro loves this is he does something first, right? He does something he, he just loves and rejoices, and then he puts sacrifices to God, right? This, so there's something he does before he shares his little wisdom, and that he shares in community. And there is something that we have to see here is in this community that God is bringing together, there is a knowledge that will come forth. And that knowledge is the mission, which is the essence of what we want to talk about today. It's the mission. Whether you are from Amalek or whether you're from Midian, you knew about what God was doing. That's basically the point. You knew what God was doing, and you could respond in either angst, bitterness, hatred, anger, or you could respond with rejoicing praise and join God's people to worship. So where are you when you see that the church is moving, that God is moving this church? Where are you and how are you responding? Because how you respond is incredibly important and we see something beautiful happen depending because of the way Jethro responded. And it, in the verse it says, brought a burnt offering, sacrifices to God. Aaron came up with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. There is this table that gets set up, and they get to eat. Which is why I think from these passages, we see that eating is important. And how we eat, what we eat, who we eat with. All these things are being displayed here. And I am a big proponent and uh, just an advocate for kimchi ministry. I think I mentioned this before. And it's just when we get together, it's you put food on the table and you join in one commonality. And that commonality is look where God has taken us out from and let's go together. Look where God has taken us out from and let's go together. Because why? The ultimate mission is to worship God. And as we worship God, we see that nations around Israel are noticing and realizing and hearing about what God did. What did God do? He took the most oppressed people, the most weakest people, the people that didn't have anything, the people that the whole world looked down on from the clutches and hands of the most oppressive but the most powerful nation the world had ever known at the time. So the most oppressed would destroy and overcome the most powerful. And people will be like, how is this possible? How, how did the Red Sea split? You know, how did hail come down with lightning? How did people just die in one night? How did so many people just die in one night? And people will say, it's the power of God. The God that is with the Israelites have this. And so as the people of God move, guess what? Nations are coming into contact with the people of God, and they're seeing firsthand what God is doing. This is evidence, and this is what the church is. This is who we are. As we move and as we grow and as we go from place to place, 
the nations or the people that are around us are going to see, and they have to see, that God is doing something great. So who is our banner? God is our flag. God is the one we lift up and saying, this is who we represent. And the nations will see that God is God. The mission is to worship God, and God is showing all the people around them that he is the one that delivers. Um, which brings us to something that perhaps is unfamiliar to us, but maybe a lot of us know this. Uh, Joshua in Hebrew is Yehoshua, right? And for short, it's Yeshua. Uh, we call Jesus Jesus, but Jesus' name is basically Yeshua or Joshua. So Joshua is the same name as Jesus. They're, they're the same name. So some people are confused. Why don't they just call Joshua Jesus then? Because it's the same name. Well, um, this part was translated or transliterated from the Hebrew Bible, whereas the New Testament was translated or transliterated from the Greek. So in the Greek, they, did, they couldn't write out Yehoshua, so they wrote Yeshua, right? Oh, I'm sorry, Yesu. And so Yesu became Latin, Yesu, which in a lot of our Eastern languages, in Chinese or Japanese or Korean, Jesus is Yesu. That's all from the Latin and the Greek, but they both mean the same name. So Joshua, if your name is Joshua, you're basically Jesus. Uh, so I, I, I get it that some of our Latin American brothers, their name is Jesus. So like, that's funny, your name's Jesus, but Joshua, you're the same thing. Uh, anyway, but uh, they have the same meaning. What's that meaning? That meaning is the Lord saves. Both Jesus, Yeshua, Yehoshua, Yeshua is short for Yehoshua. It means the Lord saves. And so when we get introduced to this name Joshua or Yeshua or Jesus, we see that there is something that happens. It says, the Lord says to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book. The first time he says, write it down in a book, and then recite it in the ears of Jesus or Yehoshua or Yeshua or Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. Who were the Amalekites? The Amalekites are people that would continue to try to strike at the heels of Israelites. The way they fought was pretty dirty. And so if you have this big camp of millions of people moving, they would try to come, out, come from behind and try to strike those and try to loot those that are, in, that are kind of straggling behind. Maybe they were a little weaker. Maybe they were a little older. Maybe they didn't have enough uh, money or power to keep up with the rest of the group, and they would keep on striking them. And they were just really dirty that way. And so this is what God says. And this, you can't help but to think, this is an incredible parallel. Do I even have to say it? Like, this is such an incredible parallel to what the Bible is teaching us as a whole. We know that this, what the power of God has done, you write it in a book, and this book is what we receive to be the Word of God, and we see that it is going to be Jesus that God will use to utterly blot out or defeat the enemies of who, uh, enemies of God. Um, I have said that the staff of God is the power of God, but every time the staff is used or the power of God is used, 
There is a certain way that the power of God was used, and that was always in judgment. And so the interesting is every time he raised the staff, there would be judgment that would come. Even when the Red Sea was split, the judgment was upon the chariots, right? The horse riders, the ten plagues, it was judgment. Uh, when he first used it, it became a snake, and it would eat the, uh, the Egyptian snake. That was judgment, right? And so right before this, we see he uses this power to strike the rock. That was judgment. And we see here all these things coming together. We are not supposed to take these stories just as a little story and then, okay, next episode. Little story, next episode. These are all interwoven together. And what is God really trying to show us when he is saying, write this as a memorial in a book, recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. He is showing us that even though things are difficult, God is going to show a way, and he has a plan, and this plan is being exercised even right now, this very moment. When we talk about wisdom, now houses of the world have wisdom, and Ephesians says the manifold wisdom of God is being shown through his church. And so how does the world get wisdom? It's through the church. And we see that all these organizations and the way even boards are set up, the way eldership is set up, not just the church, but the way like leaders are set up is very biblical. And they're actually standing because of it. And it's interesting that as the secular world changes and uh, twists a little bit, uh, the church would even adopt the secular world, which it shouldn't be. It should be the other way around. So here we are getting affected by politics saying, oh, I'm a this, or I'm a this part, uh, this kind of party affiliation. But that's not how it should be. The way it should be is, I'm a Christian. And as a Christian, and as a believer in Jesus Christ, the Word of God molds me. That's what's going to get whispered into my ears. That's what's going to be recited to me. And that's what I will believe and remember. And these are the things that we also need to understand as we move forward. All these things, how are we shaped? Are you really going to be shaped by the things of the world, meaning the, mo the little movie clips that you might see on your social media posts or feed, and they're like, oh, this is so bad, or this is so good, we got to follow this way, that way, or are you going to follow the book? Are you going to be most influenced by what is written here? And I would say as Christians, we are most influenced, and we will follow what God teaches us in the book. Um, How we move step by step, I believe, is something that we need to continue to remember. This is something we'll rally around God for. There are questions that a lot of people have, and I want to answer it by using the Word and showing us the wisdom that the Word gives us. And, you know, people are like, oh, you know, I thought we had a building. Why aren't we moved in yet? And I, uh, this is my honest answer to you. Lift it up to the Lord. Let's rally around the flag. Praise God and follow where the Lord is leading us. I don't know exactly when the town will give us uh, a certificate of occupancy. I don't know, honestly. This is something that we're working through. But in the meantime, what can we do? Uh, I do believe that this is something that God is teaching us very directly, very uh, obviously, 
rally around the flag. This is how we get our morale to get boosted. This is how we remember God is the one leading, God is the one teaching, and it could be in ways that we would have never realized. Like, I didn't know this is something that we needed to be taught. I didn't know that we actually need to be a little more humble in the ways that we go. And as I say these things, I may be speaking generally, but I hope that the Holy Spirit is moving specifically in you. In what ways are you not being humble? In what ways have you closed your mind and heart to the way the Lord is leading you? And if that's the case, then we must repent and say, this is not how I want to live life because those that are unrepentant were the Amalekites. Event essentially, they were the ones that put their hand against the Lord, not with the Lord. And so this is what the banner says. There are two kinds of people. And one kind of person is that raises the hand against the Lord like a fist. And another kind of person is the one that rallies around the flag saying, this is my Lord. And which one are you? And to know that, what kind of attitude do you have when it comes to listening to the Lord? When it comes to being taught by the Word? When it comes to saying, oh my goodness, look at all these things, I need to carry it out. Humility also means that not, not only are we listening, but we are obeying. So if the Word of God is saying something, we ought to obey. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. There is something really key here that we must understand. So there are specific things that are being taught. We have to have elders. You can't just rely on Pastor Eugene, right? You just, it doesn't work that way. We need more elders. And to, be, to have elders raised up, you've got to pray. We have to teach. We must continue to exercise what God is teaching this church. We need more leaders. We need leaders of thousands, hundreds, and tens. And how does that happen? We need to prepare ourselves. We need to be humble too. We need to continue to look at the Word and what the Word is teaching us. You can't just do it the way you think is right. Say, like, oh, maybe, maybe I'll be elder one day. Uh, it's not about you. It's about what God is leading the church through and how He's leading us and how we can be humble and submit. There is one part that I didn't mention, and, it's, uh, and I said I would. It's about Moses sitting. Uh, that what you're doing now is very different from what it was for the last 4,000 years, before around 1500. Uh, 1500 was the introduction of, of pews, formerly pews. Uh, some people will get tired, but whoever was sharing the message could go on to, historically, they would go on to almost four hours. And so some people will get tired, and they will bring their chairs too. If you look at even... James or uh, Jesus, when Jesus was talking, is don't get the best seat at the house, but get a humble place. Or James would say, you know, don't, don't give the, the rich person that seat and say to the poor man, come sit at my feet, right? And so there are places, not every, there wasn't seats like this all the time. And so people who sat were the people of power or influence, and that's why Moses sat. He was the judge. And we have that now. And it's interesting that people don't know exactly why. When the judge comes in, they go, all rise for judge, blankety-blank, and then people rise. And secondly, when the jury gives uh, its verdict, people rise to hear the verdict. It's showing that there is something about seating and judging and then standing and receiving. And so in the 1500s, that kind of changed, and now we're kind of seated to listen to the word. 
but it wasn't like that for, I would say, 3,000 to 4,000 years until the 1500s. So even if you're see, seated and listening, the, the question is, what is your attitude is, is I think, mo more important. Are you seated like, I deserve this, I'm a rich person, feed me, entertain me? Or are you in a place where you, you're saying, I need to be taught, I need to be filled, or I will go away hungry, and I won't know what's going on? And so the attitude is what is important here. Moses sits down and he judges, and then people are like, I need this. We need this desperately. So you see, all day the people would stand waiting for Moses to get to them, to, to judge their, or, you know, to litigate all their, all, all those things that they needed. But when that happens, we see that, you know, Jethro would tell uh, Moses, you know, you can't do this by yourself. You need more and more people. So like I said, these are, these, this is now kind of even getting more intertwined. And even in local church settings, I hope that we see that you need more than just a senior pastor. We have an associate pastor. We have a pastoral intern. We have two elders. We have deacons. We have small group leaders. We have all these things. But I would say pray for more and pray for the current ones that we have. Lift them up and say, you know, this is absolutely what we need. I'm so happy we have college leaders that are, you know, just serving the college. I'm so happy we have affinity group leaders. It's, I think, to be honest, uh, if you're in part of an affinity group and you're not a leader, you don't know. But when they send that email and two people respond, they get stressed. Like, are people not listening to me because they don't respect me <laughs> or they don't like me? What's going on? And then, you know, nine, if you're in an affinity group, I'm going to tell you, it's because people don't read email anymore, so that's probably why. But these things are happening, and I, I hope this changes our attitude towards the people that are serving you, that are your leaders. Um, these are people that God appoints so that you can have this church that's moving and growing and maturing. We have deacon-elects that are training uh, every two weeks we gather together, we learn and we grow. And then we have deacons who go out of their way to come to these meetings to train and grow. We, our elders, we basically just meet every week. So I just blocked out all my Tuesday nights and I just write session. So Esther, my wife knows it's just, is it a session meeting or training? It's like, I'm not sure exactly which one, but it's one or the other. And we just kind of consistently meet every week because there's so much going on. But even with what we have, the capacity that we have, I can say we can't do it right now, and we need help. People need to get up, stand up, help. If you, if you see a leader is holding something, and he's holding it up so that, you know, this is what God wants, and that leader's getting tired, maybe you can go help and be like, here, here it is. If you see Pastor Paul uh, doing the sermon and uh, children's sermon, and he's preparing. I saw him right before... Uh, the message, uh, the service today too. He was looking over his notes so that he can preach it well, even if it's two minutes and no one pays attention. Like, you know, these are five-year-olds. What are they gonna pay attention? But he's very faithfully looking over his notes. And like, you know, how are we supporting people that are doing that? And I hope that you are. I hope that you are. And the number one we can, number one way we can do that, is when you gather together. I hope that you can pray for those that are serving you. Pray for them. I'm not just trying to be selfish. Like, please pray for me. Please, please do pray for me. But pray for all the leaders 
that are here serving this church and, devo and devoting themselves to the mission of God because ultimately all of us as a people, we're supposed to be devoted to the mission of God. In our mission, whether you're an elder or not, whatever the case may be, if you're a member of this church, in our mission, we will come across forces that are against us and for us. We will defend from the forces against us, and we will invite from those that are for. It's a natural part of what missions is. And we have a group that's now going to the Philippines, and this group is going to do exactly what you see here in the Bible. When they're going to go out, they're taking land for God. And so there are going to be forces against, and there are going to be forces for. And through that whole process, what we should do is we should pray that the power of God be with them, that they will lift up God, but also that wisdom should be with them. Everything that we learn here, I hope that we can exercise and obey and put it out in prayer and in our lives in obedience to Him.